Thank you. If you could open your uh, Bibles to Ecclesiastes uh, 4. And, you know, I started to get flustered up here this morning thinking five things in advance, and so I thought I'd stop and pray. That, that, that teaches me to pray, you know. I teaches me a lesson. But no, it, I, uh, I failed to communicate the order of the, uh, the service to the worship team. So uh, communication is key in all things. The other day, uh, as I was preparing this, ser- this sermon, I got thinking back to a bumper sticker when I was a kid during the 80s when the uh, baby boomers were living large and uh, things were going real well, there was a bumper sticker that said, He who dies with the most toys wins. You guys remember that one? I, uh, I, I think that fits this sermon pretty well. It didn't stop in the 80s. We had a little slowdown in the economy in the 90s. But it ramped right back up, and the 2000s were probably defined by McMansions. And you, you see these things go down 55 and go through Plainfield and stuff, and you see these gargantuan homes, 3,000, 4,000 square feet. They, it didn't even matter if they look appealing from the outside. Some of them look like giant boxes with a gable roof on it, but it was 3,000, 4,000 square feet for these Four people families. You know, when I grew up, it was a five-person family in a 1,300-square-foot house. I have five kids in an 1,800-square-foot house. But these people, to one-up your neighbor, to make sure that you'd have a little more bragging rights than your neighbor, you buy the one house bigger. And it got ourselves into a little problem. And now we're, now we're on the downscaling. Now it's how can you get a little smaller home and cut coupons and so that the tide is changing. But often in life, we gauge ourselves or, or uh, equate ourselves or in some way compare ourselves to our neighbor. And we want what they have and we want something better than what they have. And so as we, were, as we were looking through Ecclesiastes for the past three or four sermons, we saw that Solomon opened up Ecclesiastes in chapter 1 with his thesis that viewing life from under the sun perspective, if you take God out of the equation, which many people do, evolution and, and many, many other things, theories or uh, beliefs that take God out of the equation, that life has no meaning. There is no purpose to life if you're only looking at it from under the sun. That even if you try to obtain wisdom and knowledge, that it only brings more grief. And so he, he decided he would pursue other avenues to try to bring meaning to life. And in chapter 2, he pursues pleasure. And he starts out by pursuing pleasure with foolishness and just drinking and partying and you know living it up extravagantly. And he comes to find that that too just leaves him empty and it's a destructive lifestyle. 
And so he says, well, I'll pursue pleasure through wisdom. I'll build enormous houses, great gardens, have as many concubines as I want, you know, all these things that the wealthy have. And so he did this, but it only gave him momentary, momentary satisfaction in his heart. Just a fleeting minute. But his eyes still desired more. So pleasure does not give meaning. In chapter 3, he looks at time and the entrapment of humanity in time. That we were created to be eternal beings. But because of the fall, death reigns. And we have a limited amount of time. And he, he explains that the time, the purpose of this time, this limitation, is to remind us of our mortality. Remember when Adam and Eve took a bite of that forbidden fruit, one of the reasons they did it was to be like God. And in ushering in death, they showed how far away from God they really were. And so God uses time as a constant reminder of our mortality and also of our impending judgment. For he said in chapter 3, the teacher goes on and he looks at all of life's activities. Birth, death, you know, uh, grieving, uh, being joyful, all these different activities we have in life. Working, resting. And he says all of them are beautiful in their proper timing. And he goes on to say that we aren't sure what the proper timing is. That we can't judge the motives of another man's actions, but God will. And in the end, God will judge your activities. And what some will say are, are activities done you know, with the wrong motive, God may know the right. And He may say that they're okay. But on the flip side, what people may think you're doing for the right motive, you may be doing for the wrong and God knows it. And so then he switches gears a little bit in chapter 4. And he comes in, and the teacher focuses back onto these activities. Activities which could look good, but often just cause harm. And so he, he starts off with oppression, achievement, advancement. So we look at advancement and achievement. And he he comes to the conclusion that in most cases, they are the result of man's envy for his neighbor. Envy causes us to toil for our wants. It causes us to pursue what we don't have and oppress those around us to make sure that they can't get what we have. So let's take a look at verse 1 of Ecclesiastes 4. Again I looked and saw all the oppression that was taking place under the sun. So he focuses attention from looking at every activity and from time and mortality. And he starts focusing on what activities are going on as he looks. And the teacher, he looks out over the current events and over world history. And he sees oppression everywhere. And it's, it's grievous to him. It, it causes him to, to despair. What, what about this? What causes this? He sees oppression in the home. 
He sees oppression in the workplace. He sees oppression politically. He sees oppression socially. It's rampant. It's everywhere. Most of us think of ourselves as the oppressed. But often, we are the oppressors as well. And so we're going to skip down to verse 4. Because he kind of sums up the whole chapter in this one verse in verse 4. And I saw that all labor and all achievement spring from man's envy of his neighbor. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. So the teacher observes that oppression, vigorous labor, and the desire to achieve in advance stem from the same thing. And that's envy of your neighbor. And it's a chasing after the wind. They are meaningless. It is futile to try to get ahead of another person when everyone ends up in the same place. Keep in mind in chapter 3 we covered time and mortality. All of us end up in the same place if you're looking at the world from under the sun view. And that's six feet under. We're all mortal. So no no matter how many toys you have, no matter how much better you are than your neighbor, you still end up in the same place. And that is death awaits us all. You know, we we look out and, and we can look at our own lives and we can see examples every day of oppression in the workplace, at home. You, you know, I... When I think of oppression, I think of often how the toll it takes on a person. You know, I remember around the same time we had these bumper stickers of, uh, you know, the one who dies with the most toys wins. There was some transformation occurring in the USSR, which is now, I guess, equivalent to Russia. But... At that time, they would show food lines and they'd be going around the block and they'd show the store that they were going to. And they'd have like three loaves of bread in the store. And they would interview these people and I, I would watch them and they'd be interviewing them and they'd ask, you know, how old are you? And I'm thinking this, usually it was women standing in line. I'm thinking this woman is like 70 years old and she's like 45. That's not because she didn't have oil of lay. It's because she was oppressed. Life was hard. It was beating her down. Those wrinkles were earned by just the oppressiveness of the environment she lived in. And and now today, it's hard to judge people's ages in America at least because we do a pretty good job. I you know, the I have some guys I work with that are 50 years old that are in great shape and better than my dad was at 50 years old. And, and these, you know, today we do a good job of, of eliminating that. But oppression is something that you can view. It's something you can see because it manifests itself physically in a person if they're being oppressed. So we'll... 
if we read verse, the second part of uh, verse 1, go back to verse 1. I saw the tears of the oppressed, and they have no comforter. Power was on the side of their oppressor, and they have no comforter. So he looks out and he sees it distraught on their face. He sees that they have no comforter. There is no comfort in this world under the sun for the oppressed. There is no solution to their problem. And their oppressors have all the power. If we go on, verse 2, And I declared that the dead who had already died are happier than the living who are still alive. So the teacher offers no hope no solution to the problem of oppression. There is no answer to the problem. The problem is the fall of man. The sin of man has no solution under the sun. We have to remember that from a worldly standpoint, the answers to what plagues humanity are nil. There are none. It's only until we look above the sun and at Jesus Christ and God's provision do we see an answer to the state of humanity. Verse 3, But better than both, the live and dead, is he who has not been, who has not seen the evil that is done under the sun. So the, the teacher here isn't saying that we should just all kill ourselves because the burden is too much. What he's saying is that oppression is so much and that without God, there, there is no answer to it. And that in our humanity, we can't solve the problem. There are problems too complex for us to solve. And that we need God, we need Jesus Christ to help solve our problems. And the problem of oppression is one of them. And that it is better to be the one that has never been born than to have seen the evils that go on in this world. That in some way, if you could just take out the evil that we have seen, it would be a better circumstance. We'd have more hope than what we have now. Because once you look out and you see what goes on in the world, it, it grieves you to the point of despair. You know, we had an interesting spring here in current events for the world. The Arab, the Arab Spring occurred. And Tanzania started it off with the help of Facebook and and modern technology and Skype, revolutions occurred throughout the Middle East and are occurring as we speak. Oppressed people. In Egypt, the average wage earner was making a dollar a day. The average wage earner in, um, for, the, for the UN poverty level is $3. So they were $2. They were only 33% of the... Uh, UN poverty level for world poverty. Their leader was worth almost a billion dollars. I think it's safe to say that they, were, they are or were an, 
an oppressed people. And so they rose up against oppression and they, they exiled the leader. But you know what? Their problem isn't solved. You know, the Christians that, were, that are there currently are now being persecuted more than they have been in the last 40 years. And there's other groups being oppressed as well. The oppression didn't stop. Just the people with the power to oppress have changed. The oppression in the world is not going anywhere until the world sees that the answer doesn't lie within, but from above. A world without God, there is no hope for the oppressed. Oh, excuse me. Sorry about that. The person who toils alone to achieve feats greater than his neighbor only ends life lonely with nothing to show for his or her accomplishments but toils and strife. But the person who has a partner eases the burden and protects himself against the evils under the sun. A companion will protect, encourage, and lighten the load but the individual that works alone to increase his wealth more than his or her neighbor has no advantage. And so we see in the following verses in verse 5, we'll talk about achievement. The fool folds his hands and ruins himself. Better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. So if a direct result of the sin of envy is oppression, then let, and we can all, all agree that oppression is grievous and, and a horrible result of the sin, to beat someone else down to make yourself better. One of the, one of the areas where this hides itself or max, masks itself some is in the area of achievement. We go to work, we want to achieve more than our neighbor. We run for election, we want to achieve more than the next guy, be better than the next guy. Those are okay motives, as long as you're doing it to serve God. So, he opens this passage up with verse 5. The fool folds his hands and ruins himself. There's no excuse for not working. It's just foolishness. It adds to ruin. So we can just get past the fact he's not saying here that don't work. We were created to work. Adam was to be fruitful and multiply. He was to work the garden. That was his job. That's what God created us to do. Your work, as much as it is a pain and can be an oppressive situation, is a blessing from God. And, and you usually don't realize it until you have no work. And then you realize that your job was a blessing from God. And then he goes on to say, Better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. So it's better to work for enough and live in peace than it is to work for more than you need. 
We see this over and over again where people strive really hard to, to one-up their neighbor. I, I worked with a young man. He was about my age, probably 30, 35. And he was, he was one of the best accountants we had at the firm. And he, he was going places. And, but, you know, he, he devoted everything he had to his job. And I remember talking to him one day, and he says, you know, when I was a young man, a young kid, my dad always told me, when you go to work, you be the best there is. Don't be the best you can be. Be the best that, that there is. And, and I looked at him, and I thought, well, that's, that's fine. That, I, I think, you know, we should always try to strive to be the best. You know, God wants us in the workplace to be the most reliable, to be the one, the go-to guy. You know, that, he wants us to work hard for our employer. But you know what? I can't be the best. I can't compete with you at work. I have to be the best dad. I have to be the best husband. I have to, you know, help the church where I can. I can't do everything. I can do everything my best but I can't be the best. And so I don't have a problem when he's better than me because I don't have the time to devote to it like he does. I'm not there trying to achieve to be better than him. And you see, his achievement, his, his motive was to be better than me. And he had, he had no answer. I, I think I set him back, but not very far. I don't think he got the concept that, that, you know what, you can't be the best at everything. On the flip side, I had a partner once tell me, you know what, Wayne, you can only do 2.3 things in life well. So figure out what those 2.3 things are and do them. If that means you're going to be good at work, that's one. If you're going to be good at home, there's two. But don't expect to be good at some, some other third thing because it's not going to happen. You can be decent at it, but you're not going to be good at it. And, and that's probably what this is saying when it says, you know, better one handful with tranquility. Better that figuring out that you can do 2.3 things well than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. Because if you have two handfuls, you can only eat one handful at a time. And you're, you're, you're just achieving the two handfuls for nothing. So the teacher breaks into a little story in verse 7, 8. Again, I saw something meaningless under the sun. There was a man alone... He had neither son nor brother. There was no end to his toil, yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. For whom am I toiling, he asked, and why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? This too is a meaningless, a miserable business. So the teacher relays a story of a driven man who obtains wealth. The man is alone, no brother, no son. Now, 
I'd like to tell you that I don't believe the man necessarily didn't have a brother or son, but the man who toils to achieve, to, to one-up his neighbor, and that's all he's focused on is being the best, he will forego a relationship with his son, he will forego a relationship with his brother to achieve his goal. And just because you have a brother physically or you have a son physically doesn't necessarily mean that you have a relationship with them. And when you step back and you start analyzing your life and you just step back and, and focus and, and contemplate on what you're doing and how is it impacting those around you and what is it for, that's when you start to get what Solomon's trying to get at here. And that is your motive for your work, your motive for your achievement has to be focused on something else than the envy of your neighbor, than showing the world you matter. It's showing God you care about Him and what He has done. It's focusing above the sun. So we, the need for someone whom to share the good things of life prompts a discussion on friendship. So he kind of goes on a little rabbit trail here. He, he, he starts seeing that this man had nothing. He had no one to share his stuff with. He had, he had no end to his toil. And when he looks back, he, he, has not, he has no one to enjoy what he's accumulated with. And so Solomon goes into a little rabbit trail, 9 through 12. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their work. If one falls down, his friend can help him up. But pity the man who falls and has no one to help him up. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not easily broken. So the benefits of friendship are, are listed out here. Two working side by side are more profitable than one alone. If you're striving and achieving to one-up your neighbor, you're not going to want to include your neighbor in what you're doing. You're going to want to keep them out of what you're doing because you want it all for yourself. But your profit will actually be smaller than if you allow everybody in. You know, I, I've seen this a lot in life where this happens. You know, I, at, at work, you'll see the people that are really driven and they'll take credit for everything. But no one really wants to work with them because they know they're just going to have to toil and strife right along with them. And then there'll be no credit for them when they, when they get the job done. And so then, then it's just a constant pain of this one person basically working alone. The only reason why people are willing to work with them is because it's their job and they have to. And then I've seen the opposite. The person who comes in and wants to give praise to the people under them and who wants to bring them in and get them in front of the boss and show them what they've, they've got, help them build the skills. 
And everybody wants to work for him. And so your gains actually, your profit actually goes up by not trying to up one-up your neighbor and be better than him. Not having the envy of your neighbor. Not only can, can it be more profitable, but they can help each other in time of need. If you fall down, if you need something, if some times get hard, if you have someone working there with you, they can help you out. If, uh, if you're on my short list of people to call, you've probably got a call from me to come help me pick something up that I've bought on Craigslist or eBay or some crazy thing that I've done. One time, uh, Gary LeCompte is on my short list, and I was going to buy this seed wagon for my wife's business, which is this big, huge farm implement that it's towed behind a tractor. And you put corn in it, and, uh, and we needed it for her business. And so we went all the way down to Kankakee, and we go and we pick up this, this seed trailer. And the thing's probably... I think it was 12 feet long, like 8 feet high, and, and like probably about 7 feet wide. It's, I mean, you would see it pulled behind a tractor. And so we start to, to take off from the, from the uh, auction house, and it's got two axles that are separated, so it doesn't pull like a normal trailer, and the front axle's on a pivot. And so this thing's just wobbling like crazy as we go down the street. And then we notice that the actual bin is bouncing all around. And so we pull over. We were about a mile away. Well, there was nowhere. It was a country road that was just two lanes. There was nowhere to turn this thing around. And so I tried to pull into uh, some farmland that had a little driveway and turn it around. But we figured out real quick that this wasn't going to happen. If I didn't have Gary there to help me out, I would have been in a very bad situation really quickly. But luckily, thankfully, Gary came with me on the last-minute call, and we were able to, we had to unhook it, turn it around by hand, and then drive it back. And then Gary graciously came back the next morning, because this was in the, in the evening, and we went back down there the next morning, and he helped me bring this back, and we towed it. It was it must have been hilarious, because when we were out in the country, everyone would just wave at us. We were like one of the farmers, you know? It just, they just thought it was weird that I was in a van instead of a pickup truck. But, but when we got to Harlem near Tenley Park, and this thing, you know, it's going down the road, and it's waving, a little, you know, wiggling a little bit. Man, the cars were just honking at me, and they were not too happy with me. But it, it was an adventure, and it was because I had some help that I was able to get it done. So they offer, uh, you need, a, they help each other in a need of time. And then also, if two lie down together, they will keep each other warm. But how can one keep alone, warm alone? So this is a, this is an image of two travelers. And in ancient times in, in the Middle East there, it's in the desert, and during the day it's smoking hot, and at night it's freezing cold. And you have no shelter, and you're traveling from one place to another for business or trading or whatever, and 
you need to keep warm. So you keep warm by cuddling together, by snugging up real close and using the body heat to keep yourself warm. And so that's what this is a picture of. But I think it's more of a metaphor for the emotional support, the emotional strength that you get. Because it's a cold world out there. And if you have someone beside you, they can emotionally keep you warm, keep you uh, invigorated, keep you going when you don't think you can go. And then, though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. So they give each other protection. In fact, a third friend is even better for that matter. This isn't saying you only need one friend. It's saying you can have more than one friend. Now, many people use this in the context of marriage. I I think it's taken a little out of context because it's not really talking about marriage, although I think it can apply. They'll, They'll say that, you know, though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves, a cord of three strands is not quickly broken. They'll say that the third strand is God and that a marriage relationship when you have the two, the married couple and then the God, it can't be broken. I think the picture, it's got a, a correct meaning, but it's out of context. What it's talking about here is that more friends is okay. You don't need just one friend, that you can have more than one. So when you look, we see that the person who toils alone to show that that they're one-upping their neighbor is not going to get as much return as the one who, who has friends. That this envy of the neighbor causes us to achieve but for ill-gotten gains. The last point the teacher makes is on advancement, on advancing yourself, getting better, whether it's politically or in the job. And verses 13 through 16 go into this. A better, better a poor but wise youth than an old but foolish king who no longer knows how to take warning. The youth may come from prison to the kingship, or he may have been born in poverty within the kingdom. I saw that all who lived and walked under the sun followed the youth, the successor. There were no need, there was no end to all the people who were before them. But those who came later were not pleased with the successor. This too is meaningless and a chasing after the wind. So even in advancement, If you're advancing to be better than the next person, think again. Because even if you do things better than the old king, the people will forget about you soon. And you'll just be two points on a linear time frame. Two points of reference. There'll be no more remembrance of you than that. So don't try to advance to be the best, to one-up your neighbor, because even that is meaningless in the end. You 
You know, back to that bumper sticker. Shortly after the bumper sticker, He Who Dies with the Most Toys Wins came out, there was a bumper sticker that said, He Who Dies is Still Dead. And, and you know what, that would kind of sum up Ecclesiastes 3 when it comes to doing activities for the wrong purpose. You can die with, well, death is the great equalizer. The rich, the poor, they all die. And they're all held accountable by God after death. So as if you're a boss or as a spouse, as a parent, as a co-worker, a brother, sister, fellow believer, search your motives. Are your motives to be better than the person next to you? Or is your motive to serve God? Because God's going to hold your... Even though your actions for achieving an advancement might advance His his kingdom, it could be in spite of your motive. And so you need to make sure that what you're doing is motivated by by serving God and not by showing that you're better than your neighbor. So make sure that you focus on what, not on what's in this world, not what's under the sun and what it has to offer, but what God has to offer. Life is limited by time and defied, defined by its toil and strife, but God has given us eternal life through Christ Jesus, His Son. He offers rest to the oppressed and weary. He offers heavenly riches to the poor. And He hopes He offers hope to the downtrodden. All of our actions will be judged for motive by God. If you achieved, advanced, if you oppressed those around you, out of envy and selfishness, your actions will be weighed accordingly. But God offers an alternative in His Son. Your motive to be, your motivation should be to serve Him and not yourself. Let's close in a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. And we just ask that our motives would be correct. That we wouldn't achieve in advance. That we wouldn't put our children down or lift our children up in an attempt to impress or be better than the neighbor, Lord. Lord, I pray that we would uplift our co-workers and that we would be excited about ministries that are going well, even if ours isn't. And we'd work hard to create friendships and partnerships so that we can lift those around us up, Lord. Let us be part of the solution instead of part of the problem, God. May we just serve You in obedience and Your Son, Jesus Christ. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.